Welcome to Brand Appeal, where we talk about brand storytelling in the digital age. I'm your host, Shannon Peel, and today uh, we've got a brand story. I interviewed Serge from Copkey Ports, how he's building this centuries-old European brand throughout America. So listener, if you're interested in what port is and how it differs from other types of fortified wine, keep listening. So, Serge, thank you so much for joining me here today on Brand Appeal. I have one question for you. What is it that you want to be known for? Myself personally. You know, right now at this stage of my career, um, I I really want to be known for creating a brand. Uh, It's kind of, you know, anybody in the business wants to be behind something that was successful. So Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a legacy. And right now working with Kopke, I've been presented with the raw materials, if you will, in in the shape of that brand. In order to do that, uh, Kopke's is a small brand in the U.S. right now. Do you have brand building experience in your career? Yeah, I've been in the business a long time. Started in my dad's restaurant back in the 1980s, running that, and uh, went into the wine business shortly after that. So I've been in the wine business throughout the 90s, aughts, and teens, and now into the 20s. So I've, I've been at this quite a while, and I've done everything from restaurant work uh, and on-premise work to uh, distributors and uh, wineries and importers, um, working all those angles as well as marketing and sales. So I kind of, you know, I've, over the course of my career, I've jumped around a lot and just to, to build that, those talents in order to, to put together um, the talents needed to actually build a business, um, which I'm really trying to execute on now. Being a business owner, it has its moments. <laughs> Yes. So. yes. Well, I don't own the business. I am responsible for the, uh, the U.S. business. I run the Wine and Motion Importer, okay. uh, which is owned by the ownership of Kupke, Kupke Port, okay. uh, which is a, a company called Sergio Venus in Portugal. And they are the fourth largest port producer over many brands. And Kupke is kind of their star. And that's what I'm responsible for. Ah, so you have regional licensing. I'm, I'm the U.S. Yes, I'm the U.S. importer. Perfect. Yeah. And what well, I got a ton of questions, but let's start with what is port? I'm not a what big alcohol port? drinker, so. Um, the key, the, the, the most simple way to, to, to remember it is it's fortified wine. Now, what is fortification? Uh, fortification is the, um, the addition of neutral grape spirit to the port. In other, it can be done with other spirits and other, in other types of the wine business, but talking straight about port, it's neutral grape spirit that's added to the port and that arrests the fermentation. So you have the fermentation like any other wine, fermentation is going on. When it reaches a certain alcohol level, the fermentation stops. Usually that's naturally it stops somewhere between 13, 15%. Now they stop the fermentation. Uh, for port, what they do is they add the spirit to the wine. Uh, they add it to about 20 degrees and that kills all the, fer- the fermentation, but it also preserves the sugar because what feeds the fermentation is the sugar. If you stop that fermentation, it can't ferment any longer because of the alcohol content. What you still have is that sugar content because it hasn't burned off yet in the natural fermentation. But you still have the alcohol content. Well, you, you boost it up right. artificially by the addition. So port is all 20%. Right across the board, it's boosted to 20%. Depending on where that's added, you can affect the sugar content. Like there's dry white ports. Mm-hmm. So that's added a little bit later. And then you have slightly drier. It's still sweet. It's still port. We have a slightly drier product that is often used for cocktails. Dry white and tonic is the official cocktail of Portugal. But usually they're, they're added a little bit sooner and you have a sweeter product, which is most ports. So that's in a, just in a, in a big sense. Now, that's how port is made. Um, we are the oldest port house. We've been around since 1638. 
uh, Mr. Kupke uh, started. He was a trader. He traded in many things. And at that time, it was still still wines. Officially, the, uh, the addition of the usual grain spirit to the port didn't really start officially until the 1820s. They were doing it really prior to that to keep the wine stable in their shipping to Brit Britain usually. And they started doing it as a, as a matter of fact. And then the category was created in the 1820s. Uh, we've been around for a long time. Yeah, that is a long time to have a company because we we're here in North America. You're on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. And being on the West Coast, not only are we the last to wake up in a day because we're the last time zone, but we are also the youngest yeah. part of the world. You know, something that's 100 years old is like ancient here. But in Portugal, that's like yesterday. Pretty much. You know, just even talking about our house, you know, 1638 it was founded. Wine growing was going around before that for a thousand years or more. Yeah. Now the Romans brought uh, brought the vineyards to Spain. In terms of wine history, you know, that's it goes even further back. It's a long process globally. Um, the West Coast, it, you know, even the, the Spanish missionaries brought it to California in 1638 when Cupke was first founded. Just to give you a, a little comparison. Here, people didn't really come to where I grew up until. So it's more like 1880s, right? Is that so, when Vancouver was founded? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in the interior. So I grew up six hours from Vancouver. But really, that's when a lot of people started coming to BC was in the 1880s. And were those Russians at that time? No. Oh, no. was it the English coming across? No, no, the Siberians <laughs> weren't coming through. But yes, no, it was mainly, uh, mainly people from back east coming out. Okay. The next generation to do their thing. But anyway, so back to Port... Why did you pick this brand to bring into the, to, to the U.S.? Well, the brand was already here. Mm -hmm. um, it had been, I think, uh, poorly managed prior to my arrival. It had some ups and downs. It, it, had a, it has an, actually Pacific Northwest is our strongest market just mm -hmm. across the border from you in the U.S. because there was one importer that did a good job there with it. Um, but it had never successfully been taken national. We had a couple of pockets here and there. So I was brought on really to, to get the brand some national, in particular, get distribution which as many people don't understand, especially in Europe, the U.S. in terms of wines and spirits is not one country. It is 50. Mm -hmm. And each state has their own rules and you've got to get distributors in each state separately. And that is the most difficult part of really building a brand in the U.S., uh, especially if you're small. I mean, big companies can do that because they put a lot of money behind it. But if you're a small producer uh, or with a small organization, it's one by one. Mm -hmm. That is probably the most difficult part of, of getting brands established in the U.S. I've been able to bring in some, some new distributors over the last couple of uh, months and years in different markets. Uh, I think most importantly, I've signed on with Skernik in the U.S. for eight states. Uh, that was a big thing for the brand. Uh, and they're the type of, they're really the type of distributor we need in the U.S., you know, fine wine distributor, especially, you know, we're not just an, a regular courthouse. We focus on what are called colletas, and we have a huge library of those. And we hang our hat on them because it's a, it's a fabulous program, but you know, we need specialized distributors in order to handle that kind of business. The, the big guys are too big. They won't pay attention to it. The small guys don't have the depth. It's a little bit like Little Red Riding Hood. You have to find the right spot uh, with the right distributors in order to build your business properly. So it's knowing your niche. Yes, exactly. And understanding and, it. Well, and getting distributors who know your niche mm -hmm. and understand it, um, you know, that have access to the, the, the fine wine shops, and to the better restaurants and are, I have a reputation for selling products that those establishments want. Mm -hmm. So you have to fit in with their portfolio as well. 
Uh, and I think, you know, Cupkey does, and I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout. And I have a couple of others that I'm signing up, hopefully Florida very soon, Mid-Atlantic, another couple of markets, two different distributors in the Mid-Atlantic should come on. Little by little, I'm replacing smaller houses, mom and pop shops with those kind of medium-sized distributors and staying away from large distributors because it's just not, they just have other things and we don't have the, you know, it, it's a difficult business. And unless you have the force de frappe, as they say in French, which is, which is usually money in this business and the attention, the ability to get the attention of the large distributors, they just don't do anything for you. Well, I think that's the case in anything. If everyone wants to go with the bigger name, um, they want to get the bigger influencer to pay attention to them or to share their product or whatnot, but it does very little for your brand because they're, you're just, you're just a number. There's no relationship there. There's no buy-in. You can give a influencer with a lot of followers your product, pay for them to showcase it. They'll do that for the one day and then it's gone. And they don't believe in the product. They don't, there's not that buy-in, right? That's a challenge really, yeah. You have to find partners that are interested that believe in what you're doing. That's a big challenge. That's hard. Because there's also other people out there trying to do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And trying to get their attention in that manner as well. It's extremely competitive. You know, the U.S., the number of brands in the U.S., not just port, I'm talking wine in general, probably quadrupled since the 90s, just in total number of brands. And oh, yeah. the number of wholesalers has been cut in half. So, I mean, it, it, it's really difficult to get attention. Like I know here where I grew up, I grew up in wine country for British Columbia. It used to be orchards. It was orchards. And then people right. started cutting down the trees to grow the vineyards. There's all these small little ones popping up in the last 10, 15, 20 years. It seems that wine just took off and everybody wanted to get a piece of it. And as small operators, it's not easy. I mean, I guess those, those wineries probably sell most of their product domestically. So they don't have to worry too much about, because they're small producers, they don't have to worry too much about the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. But anybody who's getting big enough to want to sell in the U.S. market from Canada, it's, it's, and there aren't that many, there's a handful that do well. Um, mostly from the East Coast, a couple of people from the West Coast as well. But it's really not easy getting that attention. No, it's not. That's not. Like there are a couple of big, big wineries in the Kelowna area. There's more, I would say more smaller ones. And every time I turn around, there's a there's somebody's trying a new wine that that, that from, right. from a new winery somewhere in the BC region. Well, it's it's good that they have a, a built-in marketplace for the wines. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> I know the Canadians are buying their wine. That's that's wonderful. You know, I think it with anyone this buy local, support local, and be proud of what, what's produced locally is a big trend. The whole from farm to table. Just to turn that on its head, I'm actually quite pleased that we don't have domestic competition in our category, in the port category. There obviously is a lot of low price and they have, st- like Corbel with Champagne, like Christian Brothers still has the rights to the term port because it was grandfathered, but otherwise the, it's protected and there, there really isn't anything because we don't, we don't play in the low end. So it's not competition to us. There's very little domestic competition to, to what we're trying to do, which I'm thankful for. Because <laughs> if you're a wine producer, you know, not only do you have to come here and get distributors if you're from wherever, still wines, mm-hmm. but you have to compete against California wines. Port has having that niche in the US. That's another thing I thought was a great thing about Cupkey is that I think it has, it has cachet and it doesn't have natural built-in domestic competition. So all these things led to me to say, yeah, yeah, we can do something with this. We were talking about niches a couple of times here and it being such a niche product. And that is the benefit. Why is niching so important? 
Uh, it's, you know, you, you have to carve out something for yourself. If you find a spot that you can carve out, that you can define, like our Colletas program. And by the way, uh, do you know what Colletas are or? No. Oh, just briefly. So Cupkey, just about Cupkey. Cupkey's a good sized porthouse. We make all kinds of ports. Um, the one thing about ports that can drive distributors crazy is the number of SKUs. There's, there's Ruby ports, which are generally like a vintage is a Ruby port and that ages in bottle. Or there's lesser expensive Ruby ports that stay in stainless steel for a couple of years and they put in bottle. Those are basically young ports, young fresh ports, or in case of a vintage, meant to be aged in bottle. Cupkey is a Portuguese house. The, the Portuguese houses, on the other hand, focus more on aging port, in barrel, in-house, and releasing. We make everything. We make all the rubies. We make vintage. But as a Portuguese house, we age ports. And the most important part of that is having stocks. Being so old and setting aside stocks for so long, we have one of the largest libraries. And all the wines, when you declare a colletas, you keep them separate by year. Colletas just means vintage in Portuguese, but we don't use the term because of the association with vintage port. We use the term colletas, but we'll call it a single year 20. And we make whites as well, which is a whole nother story. Um, but a single year 20 is a colletas. And we have this offering we do every year called the short list. Uh, it's a pre-sale we do. And we have products going back to the 1930s by year. Nobody else has got that. So that's a niche. Right now, we have a pre-sale going on in the United States with about 40 different years. So we do that pre-sale every year. Not only tawny ports, those are, again, aged in barrel, but white-aged ports. Having, having said that, we have all the tawnies going back, and we have these huge stocks that we hold, which is you know, pretty much as much as anybody else. In terms of white port, nobody else has what we have. Our, our house has been aging white port for 100 years. So we have a 10, 20, 30, 40, not only in tawny, but in white. No other houses really have that, especially in the U.S. market. So it's the um, old, old it's vintage. The kept, it's not vintage. We can't call it vintage because vintage okay. is right. a ruby port. It's aged in bottle, but it's, uh, it's basically keeping stocks for the um, aged port programs, which is 10-year port, 20-year port, 30-year port. They're blended, but for the colletas, those are single year. And we release, we release those every year. We have a library releases. So we don't sell all of one year at a time. We'll sell a quarter of it, and then a couple of years later, they'll release another batch of it. That way, we just keep aging it. And the colletas always have the bottling date on the back of the label. So let's say we have a, a 1960, which is a bottle here, if you like, which is my year, which is my birthday's coming up. So this baby is going to be drunk really soon. A 1960 that was bottled in 1970, say, and 10-year minimum at Kopti, they're allowed to bottle at seven years for a single year. We keep them 10 years. So a 1960 that was bottled in 1970, which exists, there may be bottles out there still, will say on the back, bottled in 1970. So this was bottled in 2022. So you see the difference. It was in barrel all those other years. They released some early, and as it stays in barrel, it gets better and better and better. And we have a library of these kinds of things. Just as a few examples, I put some bottles out. There's a 75, there's an 81, there's a 60. We have tons of this. Nobody else has this in the marketplace. When we talk, and this brings us back to what you were asking about niche. This is our niche. So this is something that we do. And this is what makes us attractive to those, those better fine wine distributors. When you're getting the story out there, because you have to get the story out to the distributors and the consumers Correct. to let them know that you are the brand of choice if they want high quality port with single year Exactly. Aging and this unique type of product. Where are you telling your brand story to get this information into the right audience? There's several audiences. There's obviously the, uh, the distribution channels, 
can, we can tell all the pretty stories and about history and all that. And that's all wonderful. And people love that. But at the end of the day, distributors want to make money. Mm-hmm. That's what they're in business for. Your conversation with the distributors has to be more commercial. The fact that we offer something that nobody else has in the marketplace right there is a commercial proposition because, okay, this is a category that we can, we can take over. Mm-hmm. There's no competition here. No, it's like Kleenex. Nobody calls, it's all Kleenex. Whether, no matter what brand it is, it's all Kleenex. So if you have something that isn't otherwise offered in the marketplace, that's a great angle and that's a commercial angle. When we talk to consumers, uh, we, we talk more about the history of the winery, about the history of the products, all the things that, that consumers like to hear. And that's why we have a PR firm. We, for the first year, we've had, brought on a PR firm to help us with that messaging directly to consumers because we've never messaged to consumers before in the US. So this is new for us. It's an expense for a small brand, but uh, it's worthwhile. And we believe that as we build our base within our distribution network and within the, the retail shops in the U.S. and with the sommeliers in the U.S., in order to support them, we need to work on the consumers as well. So that, that money is well spent. Trying to stand out in a very competitive market uh, really takes understanding your unique selling proposition, mm-hmm. exactly. which you have. How do you ensure that the waiter or the some or some sorry the guy that sells the wine to the consumer. yeah there you go <laughs> or we used to call them some liars when we were making fun of them but oh, okay. we love them <laughs> <laughs> how do you make sure that they tell the story right ah that's training um that's a large part of what i do you know i go out i, I do training for my wholesalers because they're the ones you know i could go out and work with wholesalers as well with distributors in the street but you can't touch everybody that way so you have to count on your distributors you have to count on the proper training with the salespeople training either in front of the groups, you know, fly around and do training for the, for the distributors or in the last couple of years, for obvious reasons, we're doing a lot of zoom trainings. We have, in fact, here, let me show you something. What I've been using for that are these little kits we have. So this. Oh, nice. Little, yeah, little test tube kit. And it's got in there and we send this out to, we, I use these, I send them out to the sales reps. So the distributor, the distributor sends them to their homes. And I have sometimes up to 50 people on with me tasting these. And so there you, what we do with these is kind of a, doing the comparison between an aged port, which is a 10 year, 20 year, 30 year, 40, those are all blended products and the single year colletas. So you have a 20 year white, you have a 2003 colletas, you have a 10 year tawny, you've got a 2012 colletas, you've got a 20 year tawny, you have a 2002 colletas. A couple of differences in that the 10, 20, 30, 40, and now 50, which has been approved, are blended to a house style every year. So the, the master blender and a, and a port house, just like a scotch house, has a master blender, and he's in charge of all this. He's got to make that the same every year. And now he may have different raw products to work with when he makes that. Whereas the colletas, those are going to reflect the vintage. Those are going to reflect the conditions of that vintage. For the blending, the rule in Portugal, you know, they have a very strict governing body. And the rule to make the blends is you know, it has to be of the character of a 10-year port or of the character of a 20-year port, which is, to me... But amorphous as a rule, our rule within Cupkey is that for a 10-year, they'll use wines no more than two years younger and no more than four years older to make that blend. And the same thing with the 20, no more than two years younger than 20 years, no more than four years older, and they'll make that blend. So the, the trick really is for the master blender with that changing palette he has to create a similar product on that 10, 20, 30, 40 year. That's a, that for the people who buy the product, um, you know, if they buy in year in, year out, they're going to buy product that's going to remind them of the, the last time they drank it. It's, it has to be a certain style. That taste has to be consistent year over exactly. year, even right. though you're not using the same 
years. That's in... the beauty of the master blender. That's his job. Wow. Yeah, it's it's not an easy job. No, I'm thinking, <laughs> how? <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful thing. It's It really is. And the wines are beautiful. The Colletas are sourced a little bit differently for the for the aging program uh 10 20 30 40 it's about three quarters our fruit and it's one quarter um, long-term contract fruit the colletas come from our own finest vineyards so higher altitude they tend to have a little bit less sweetness and a little bit more acidity than the blended wines again in terms of style and they're going to reflect the harvest year as well interesting interesting okay i mean i, I do a pre-sale with colletas every year like i mentioned that pre-sale takes in usually about $300,000, dollars to my company every year. So it's a big part of our business. So I was looking at the bottles there because mm -hmm. like, they got different years on them, but the yep. bottles are pretty much similar. Yeah, the bottles. And these are hand-painted, by the way. Hand-painted. Hand-painted. They have a stencil. and they... It's very high-end. Yeah, so Cupcake, it's, you know, the, the image of, of the brand um, is that. It's, it's a high-end brand. Having said that, you know, we sell all levels of port. So, you know, consumers of all levels can enjoy our products. We have some things that are expensive. They are keeping that look. Yes. It's the old, it's the old school look. Yeah. The, There's the, other brands with that have labels, regular labels. They've decided to preserve. This is the old school port look. And we decided to preserve that. That's, that's the image we want, um, especially with all the stocks we have. That's the image we want in the trade. Mm -hmm. You're really capitalizing on the heritage. Exactly. How old the company is in order to make it extra special, unique. Yeah, that's, that's all part of the messaging, yeah. Whether it's spoken or not, when people see these on the shelf, it, it does give you the, okay, this is, uh, this is something serious here. This is old school. People talk about wine from such and such a year. Or this was a good year. That was a good year. I'm not a big drinker. So to me, I don't understand any of that. Is there really a huge difference between years and taste? Oh yeah. I mean, we're talking in still wine in particular. Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's an obvious truth of the wine industry. When we talk about things like 20 ports, what you have to remember about uh, aged wines, aged in barrel is that they become oxidative. So in other words, that we're not aging them in barrel to give them flavor from the barrel. That's what they do sometimes with red wines, especially when barrels get very expensive. Uh, these are all used barrels. The key here is the exchange of oxygen through the barrel. And so it's a very, very slow process of oxidation. So these wines, they're, they're already oxidized. What that means is you can open one of these wines and leave it in your fridge for six months and it's not going to budge. That's already been done in a good way, in a positive way. So any tawny port will, you know, you can, it's, it's great for, for restaurants because you're not going to have losses due to wine going bad. You, you can serve an expensive bottle of Tony Port and you don't have to worry about losing it. It's going to be good in six months. And for stores as well, you know, if, for a consumer to buy a, a Colletta or an aged Tony Port, the way I like to, to inform the consumer is that, you know, you don't think of it as a bottle of wine. If you're going into a store and you're buying a, an aged Tony Port, think of it like a bottle of scotch. You're going to have that scotch on your shelf. You're going to take a little bit whenever you want to. That's what you have here as well. You do not have to drink this as a consumer. And that's one of the big things that I try to, to uh, in my, mentioned before in my training is that, you know, get that message across. Because once consumers know that, you know, they, they don't, the pressure is released from them to, oh, I have to drink that. I've opened it. I have to drink the whole thing. No, not with these. These things are pre-oxidized for your enjoyment. So you, so it's one of those things that you have on those evenings that you just want to, yep. it's an extra little special. Exactly. You have a glass of port on a, on a Friday night. You don't have to worry. You can leave the thing in your fridge and it's going to be fine. No matter, even some of these older ports, it's going to be fine. It's not going to budge. Interesting. 
Interesting. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. I think it's probably, and again, it's, I try to say that to as many people as possible because I think it's one of the most important things for consumers to understand because they just don't know. And they think, well, I have to open this. I have to drink it. And this is really heavy. <laughs> it's, it's heavy. It's, it's sweeter than, um, than regular wine. It's mm -hmm. higher alcohol than regular wine, but you don't have to drink it. You can drink a little bit of it, have a glass or two, oh, by the way. As, as a salesperson, yes, I want you to drink it. But having said that, <laughs> don't you can take as long as you want, take your time and drink it. Yeah, you can. Um, a lot of your branding or a lot of your marketing and the brand is done in the real world, not in the digital world. Yes. So yes. it's all more that relationship and building that relationship with the distributor who then goes and builds a relationship with the- Exactly, yes, it's very, uh, it's, it's very old school that way. We don't, we're not doing a whole lot of, obviously we have, the brand has its, it's Twitter and it's uh, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, you know, that's for consumers and they do some reach out, reach to consumers at the winery. But on my end here in the States, it's all blocking and tackling. They have it out there so that people can engage with the brand on exactly. social media. And consumers do, they do pretty well. And that's run from the winery as well. That's mm -hmm. not run from my end. As I'm out there, you have to remember that here in the States, as I mentioned earlier, it's like 50 countries. So you have, they all have to be spoken to separately. Every time I talk to somebody down yeah. there, we talk about it doesn't just your alcohol that is like about 50 different countries. It's almost like yeah. everything in your guys's life is like 50 different countries, which makes it very difficult for everything from your tax system to your healthcare system. To That's true. Even how your voice sounds is all different compared to different <laughs> states. Even the attitudes of people, right? Like if you, when you think of California, you think of California. When you think of Texas, you think of Texas. Those are two very different personalities, two very different brands, as you say. Like we have the same thing here in Canada where we have, you know, Alberta is our Texas and BC is our California, the Canadian version of them. It's interesting that you have these regional areas that are all different, but you're able to sell into every single one of them. But when you're selling into each one and you're doing it differently, is there some states that you have to go in with a totally different way of doing it and a totally you different get to, message? Yeah, being in the, as I mentioned, I've been in the business a long time and I've had a lot, a lot of national positions. So I've flown all over and I've worked with reps in, in pretty much every state in the country at this point. You know, it's, it's all about making relationships. And yeah, you have to approach people a little bit differently, um, different places you're at. And that it's kind of something that can't be taught. You just have to go out and figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, so because if, if I'm in Texas, I'm going to be also beyond the personal aspect, the laws in each state are different. Mm -hmm. So you as a, as a professional going out there have to know exactly what you can do and what you can't do just from a legal perspective without, before you even begin dealing with, you know, with what might work and what not, what might not work in, in terms of an approach to, uh, to a potential distributor or, or even to a retail or a restaurateur. So it, it can be tricky, but, you know, having had that experience, I've been doing it for about 30 years running around this country. Uh, it just, after a while, you kind of absorb it. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, don't, you don't really, it comes to you. I mean, you guys have very different roles than we do up here takes me by oh. surprise when I go down to the States, I go to Costco to do some shopping and there is alcohol <laughs> in Costco. It's and not, not in New just, York, not in New York. You won't find alcohol in Costco in New York. Oh, really? It's Again, like, everywhere is different. Cause you know, I may be see where it's still mainly liquor stores with a few beer and wine right. stores in the retail end. We're, and even we're that like that in new. Pennsylvania and New Hampshire is pretty much our Canada. Okay. <laughs> it's the same rules. So yeah, it's knowing all those different rules and knowing what you yep. can and cannot do. And 
How does that affect your brand story though, when you're going in? Because you're trying to position your brand. Yeah, it's when it's um, a wide open market where you know you're you're really talking to to retailers and and restaurateurs about the qualities of your brand and you hit them off one by one you really got to get, get into the details when you're talking to a market like Pennsylvania where there's one central buyer it's less romantic it may be more price driven it may be more of a commercial conversation so it's it, you have to approach them all differently now when you're doing your sales pitch how important is story for me, I think our story, if, well, if you have a good story, you want to use it. <laughs> Everybody has a story. You always have to tell stories. Uh, the wine business is just one big story. Uh, every brand has to have a story to tell. Not every brand has a good story. So they have to talk about their founders or they have to talk about something else. The beauty of working with a brand like Cupkey is it's got such a great story. It's got such a long history. And especially you know, most European properties do, but especially something like Cupkey and especially a category like Portugal, which isn't as well understood. You can play with it a lot more. So it's, it's really important to tell that story. Everything for every, at all levels, you know, from consumers to, to the um, retail and restaurant tier right through to the distributors, you, you really have to tell that story and you have to teach other people to tell the story for you. That's mm -hmm. really the key with the distributors. A lot of people aren't storytellers. No, but people in this business, I mean, if you're in a position of sales in this business, you're, you're a storyteller because that's what sells wine. Uh, a lot of stories sell a lot of wine. When you're getting to the to the retail level, you know the the people on the floor at retail are are very much trained to that. It's a good retailer. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of retailers out there. A good sommelier will be aware of that, and a good sommelier will will try to pump up the romance on the floor when he's talking to his uh, clients at their table about what they're going to have. I mean, not everybody can do it, but if you're in the business, it's really almost second nature. Salespeople really have to be storytellers. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, they well, they do. They have to be. I mean, a lot of wine is sold with stories. Yeah. Each property has its own, we'll call it the pitch. I remember when I was a sales rep in my earliest jobs and I would go out with a, you know, we we'd call it a ride with, you go out with the supplier mm -hmm. in a ride with, which is either, a, if you're lucky, it's a winemaker. If not, it's a regional rep from some large importer or some such. My first thing I would do is tell them, okay, the first four accounts, you make the pitch. The next four accounts, I'll make the pitch. And that's how I learned that story. The pitch is the story. Mm-hmm. So for a sales rep, you, you got to learn that pitch. And the best way to learn that pitch is to be in the car with the guy, have them work with you. So you never turn, you know, at this point, a lot of sales reps are, are overburdened with ride with because everybody wants to get out in the field and sell their wine. Uh, but it is important for them to, you know, the important ones to, to learn that pitch from, from the mouth of the, of the actual representative of the winery. Yeah. When I was in sales, I would be driving around Alberta and I would be listening to Brian Tracy CDs while I was driving. And there was this one story that he was talking about where it, they were, the guy was this glass salesperson and he was supposed to be selling the safety glass. He was the top salesperson. And in the meeting, the manager said, so what is it that you're doing that nobody else is doing so that you're the top salesperson? He said, well, went to his kit, grabbed it. He had a hammer and he had the safety glass. And he put it down and he smacked the safety glass with the hammer. And he goes, that's how I sell it. Now, everyone else in the group got a hammer. And all of a sudden, everybody's sales started going up because that's what they did. They, you know, you showed the product. You that's showed it. the yep. product by showing this. Well, he wanted to be the number one salesperson. So he had to think, how am I going to up my game to get that edge? What did he do? He gave, he gave the, the client the hammer and said, okay, hit it. Ah. And he became the number one salesperson again. It's all about 
how you tell that story. Exactly. You can tell a story and it will land flat because you're telling the wrong story to the wrong person. I see this a pitch um, deck or pitch fests all the time where the CEO of a startup gets up to tell the story of his company and he loses the audience in the first sentence. It, how can you get somebody's attention right away? So they, they want to lean in and find out more about your product. It's a good question. Um, and that's all part of being a, a good salesperson. Um, the first part is go, happens beforehand. The first part is establishing a relationship. Mm -hmm. So if you have somebody who's a friendly, who knows you, who wants to listen to your stories, that's a, that's a big boost. But even then, you know, cold calling is another art in and of itself. When you're talking to somebody maybe for the first time and you've just got to be fluid, you've got to know what you're talking about. And I think most importantly, you have to re be respectful of the other person's time mm -hmm. because, you know, some people go in there and they'll, they'll just start talking and not saying a whole lot and people are busy. So you have to somehow show that person that you respect their time and that you're not going to waste their time with, with nonsense. First, in order to do that, you have to know what their needs are. You know, if you're selling above, if you're selling something to somebody who doesn't need it, uh, you're wasting their time. Mm -hmm. um, now, sales reps often fall in conflict with distributor management and those kind of things because distributor management wants them to sell certain things because those are the important suppliers and they have to sell those things to meet their goals. Sometimes a sales rep just has to ignore that. And if it's a certain client, he's got to go and sell them something else. You, gotta, you have to know what to sell to whom. So if you go in with something that, that they don't need in the first place, it means you don't know your customer and mm -hmm. you're wasting their time, which means you don't have respect for your customer. So I think that's the bottom line is really have respect for your customer's time, sell them something, at least present them something that at least you think they might need and present them in such a way that they're going to want to buy it from you. Everybody's busy and you got to, you got to have respect for people's time. Don't waste it. Yes. I think that is really good advice. And in the digital world, I see mistake after mistake after mistake where people aren't respecting the audience they're just selling. They, yeah. It's that they're playing the numbers game. They're trying to yeah. find the low hanging fruit. They aren't salespeople. They're yeah. just numbers order takers, but marketers do it as well because marketing and sales have become one in the same in the digital world. Two headed more, beast. <laughs> more businesses, more businesses want marketers to create something that sells so they can get, so basically not have that salesperson in the middle. It's like everything online by and it's not easy because there is an art to sales. There is that piece where you're actually connecting with somebody and understanding what they need and having that relationship. Yeah. I think online marketers have been convinced, and maybe they're right. I don't know. I'm, I'm not in that business, but they've been convinced that they have a split second to get someone's attention and they've got to keep it. And then, so I, I saw, this is an example, I, I saw on Instagram an ad for uh, some pants. Oh, these look interesting. Let me look at this. So I click on it. And before I can even look at the product, you know, I've got this request for, hey, get 10% off. Give us your email now. And let me see the pants first. And so before I can even do that, I've got an interruption. And they lost me. Some companies are paying people a lot of money to figure out, you know, how much this works and how much it doesn't. Maybe it just turns me off and other people dive in. To me, it was a big turnoff. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of people out there are not understanding audiences or not understanding consumers or the consumer journey. They're just trying everything and anything. And because they can test, A-B test, A-B test, A-B test, everything is now beginning to look the same. 
and there is no unique selling feature. Uh, they don't even really understand what that is because they're so busy trying to give the consumer what they need that they lose the story in, in doing that. What is it about sales that you really enjoy? Um, I was always a talker as a kid. You know, it, sometimes it just comes natural. You know, there's, not, there's nothing like the feeling of getting a big order. It's like a, it's like a euphoria, it's all its own. I mean, all the, whatever it is in your brain that's, that starts getting released. Yep. It starts getting released. So there, there's an excitement part to it. You know, sometimes I guess it can be like gambling too. They get the same feeling, but here at least you're making money. Uh. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I did know, I did uh, in my, in my time, I uh, worked with a lot of salespeople that were also gamblers. You like people, you, you like to talk, just like to talk and it doesn't get them anywhere. Um, but if you know how to talk to people and how to keep their interest and you know, you, that can be established as a child. Mm-hmm. Very often, you know, salespeople can be uh, pretty specific kinds of people. Like a lot of times people say, oh, well, sales, it can be learned. And yeah, there's certain skills that you can learn and everybody can learn, but there's also certain innate skills that true professionals. Exactly. I'll give you an example. There's a very, very, very large company in the wine business called Gallup, and they have a path. They have, they have certain training and they're very good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, Gallo, Gallo trained people are in the highest ranks of the industry, whether they're at Gallo or not. I often felt, you know, because very often what they'll do is they'll take somebody who's a great salesperson and make them a good salesperson. <laughs> and they'll take somebody who is a bad salesperson and make them a good salesperson. Yeah. They're going to make everybody a good salesperson, but it leaves out greatness. Yeah. Some people are naturals. And if you interfere with that, you're, you're not doing yourself a favor. But you know, having said that, it's very successful for them because they've got a lot of good salespeople and good managers. The great people, they're allowed to flourish on their own. Yeah, they have that creativity with that lone wolf kind of way of doing things. They're very highly self-motivated. They don't need somebody watching over their shoulder. and Exactly. Uh, they don't need somebody and to tell them how to do it. A lot of them don't do well. And I'll, this will go for myself. I've never done well in a, in a very um, corporate atmosphere. Yeah. Because yeah. there's too many constraints. One of the reasons I ended up in doing something different like this was I couldn't find work. I would, you know, go to interviews and interview and interview. And at one point, someone looked at me and said, I just don't know where to put you. <laughs> you just don't fit in the box. You don't have the criteria that I need for the manager. And yet you're way too advanced for this, this position here. So we just don't know what to do with you. You know, they do have this, you got to check all the boxes in order to make it through the, the corporate world. Now, as a small company with the European plug, how much does that European brand add to the value or the quality or the perceived quality of the product? Well, in terms of port, port is port. Um, obviously, fortified wines are made all over the world. Uh, Australia has a huge fortified wine, domestic fortified wine industry. The U.S. has fortified wine, but doesn't have a big industry. When we're talking about port, well, you know, Portugal is really the game. Uh, so for, for, for this category, from my experience, you know, that, that's a huge benefit. Um, there's, there's no drag there whatsoever. It all depends you know, what, the, what the landscape is like and what your competition is. Now, as I mentioned earlier, port is such a great thing because in the U.S., there's no domestic competition. We have, we have the category all to ourselves. Obviously, there is. There is tons of fortified wine. The volume is much higher. But at these upper price points in this category, at this level, there's no competition. Right. But is it, does having it become from Europe give it that little extra bit of je ne sais quoi? Well, in, at, there was a time when the wine industry, yes, that was a big part of it. 
the domestic wine industry has put the lie to that. Now, obviously, France is always France. And there's the, the Italian is the number one exporter in terms of volume to the U.S. And those things aren't going to change. But having said that, you know, we have not only California, but all these other new world wine categories, uh, whether it's Australia or Argentina or, or something else um, that have really established themselves in the U.S. It's not, you know, it's maybe 30 years ago, it was, it was a lot of Europe and Europe was the name of the game. That's changed dramatically, uh, dramatically, excuse me. Um, right now, I think imported wines, total imported wines are about 30, 35% of the marketplace. Whereas that was a bigger share back in my father's day, I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, the, the cachet of Europe, uh, while it still holds true for the higher ends of wines, there's so much out there now um, that it's, it's not the case anymore, really. It's not, it's not you know, your number one selling point. Uh, and I know that a lot of European producers have been struggling with that for a long time and doing some some actually very silly marketing in order to combat it because they don't always get it either they're marketers well it's not easy being a marketer no. you know i'm i'm unique in that i've i've had a sales career i've had a marketing career and now i've been a, i've been a writer and now i'm bringing it all together to create this platform it's a lot of work to, yeah. to create a brand it does it does and I've, I've been involved with a lot of successes in the past in my career i've been a lot of involved with some failures as well as i mentioned earlier i've had a fairly long career for me uh, you know i see this effort this brand to put a cap on a on a long and 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 successful career i'm not successful i'm, I'm again i'm no big shot i'm not successful in that in that but if i can if i can make, make this brand happen which i believe i am uh, I really would take pride in that as the last thing I did in this business. And I hope, I, I sincerely hope that's, that's what it's going to be. I've got a brand that I can sink my teeth into. Mm -hmm. um, I've, got, I've got management that has let me go out and do it. Uh, so it's all those factors are coming together for me now. And the experience I have from every angle of this industry, it's all coming together um, in a very happy way for me. Hopefully that will continue. Now, it's all about sales. You know, you got to deliver. My, the old expression is, you know, the the romance of the wine industry dissipates when you have to move boxes out the door. And that's the truth. Yes. <laughs> but I'm seeing this as really a, a crowning achievement if I can get it done. That's good. That's great. And then we thank you, Serge, so much for spending some time with me today on Brand Appeal and educating me about port. Um, very interesting stuff. I will have to take more time and dive into the, the industry a little bit more as and find out more about these interesting old and high-end <laughs> uh, products. So where can people find your broad products if they want? Uh, in the US, mm -hmm. um, we're, we're distributed in all major markets. One great thing about the US is if you have a local retailer, you know, sometimes people want to find something. When if you have a local retailer that you love doing business with, that you go down to the corner or drive down to the supermarket and, and talk to that retailer on a regular basis, you can always ask him to the, order it for you. Mm -hmm. They'll know who the distributor is. Just tell them the brand. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is um, Wine Searcher. People can go on Wine Searcher and they can find anything they like as long as it's allowed to be shipped into their state. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Serge. And Not I uh, wish you the best in, in making this a... Listener, I hope that you learned a lot. I know I did. I didn't even know about port before this episode. And now I'm going to have to put it into that bucket list of mine. If you have a port lover in your life, share this episode with them so that they can find out more about how port. And if you like today's episode, please stop by either Apple or Podchaser and 
give me some stars. Let people know that this episode is worth listening to. And as always, jump on over to marketappeal.com and tap that membership button right underneath the leather journal in order to get the newsletter as well as access to programs to help you tell your brand story better. If you're looking for more information about how to tell a brand story, there's lots of information at marketappeal.com just waiting for you. Until next time, peel out.